Father, we thank you today for the chance to sing. It's all the muscles in our, our tongue, the coordination, um, all the neurotransmitters in our brain that calls us to experience this delight of music and responding to you in ways that it doesn't work any other way than through music. Our hearts have been encouraged because you live. Thank you. We get to say that, shout that, sing it. Lord, I thank you for gathering all the people from the northeast, south, and west into this place today, into many of your churches around the country and around the world and by way of the internet. Father, we know people bring all sorts of needs. They might classify themselves as a dark time in their life. Lord, would you, we're asking you to shed the light of Christ into the darkness to free them. May the light break chains. May the light open doors. May the light move boulders. May the light give hope. May the light actually be, Lord, your, your embrace, your love, removing their darkness and replacing it with the, righteous, the righteousness of Jesus, the pure holiness of Jesus Christ, given to us freely by faith. I pray somebody would come to Christ today. I pray all of us would be renewed and come back even more. Oh, light of the world, come shine upon me that I may be a vessel that gives light to these today. In Christ I pray, amen. As you know, just in a, really just a few days, we're gonna recognize the 20th anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Centers of 9-11 when terrorists hijacked two planes and flew them into the north and south towers of uh, lower Manhattan bringing down the buildings, resulting in the death of 2,606 people that were in those towers. Every year, beginning at, um, at sun, um, sundown on the September the 11th and continuing through sunrise on September the 12th, two massive beams of light are projected in lower Manhattan um, to honor not only the lives that were lost, but to call America itself to to persevere and to fight um, out of the darkness of those days into, into better days of light. The two shafts of light that originate, um, the shine in the sky, actually originate just a little bit south of the 9-11 memorial, if you've ever seen that. And they're actually not just one light, but they're, they're two separate blocks intended to mimic the two twin towers, 48 square feet, and they are composed of 88 separate lights, each of those lights uh, producing a beam of 7,000 watts. It's the strongest light source man has ever produced that shines from the earth. There's really not a better picture um, that I can think of of what the call of the church is to be in this culture. Darkness everywhere and the light of Christ shining through the witness, the preaching and the singing and the praying and serving of the church. If there's any one thing that I can guarantee between now and the end of history, it's only going to get darker. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible says as Christ is closer and closer to his second coming, the, the times on earth will be darker, and therefore the call of the church is to shine in the darkness, uh, to speak that this is dark so that people may come out of the darkness and be saved by the light and life of, 
Jesus Christ. This is how the Apostle Paul called us to that in Ephesians 5. Beginning with verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Jesus Christ will shine on you. I mentioned last week when we looked at verse 11 that, matter of fact, I almost named my, my sermon this title, Shine is Much Better. I almost meant, uh, named the sermon, the, the least obeyed verse in the Bible is Ephesians 5 and 11 because we look at it and we just feel so out of water like, this is not me. I'm not one that is called to expose the darkness, to point it out in my culture. And it's, it's easy to justify silence. It's easy to justify silence, but it's, but it's wrong. We, we easily believe the other portions of Scripture that tall, call us to do good deeds, to give away our money, to give away our life, to go to serve the Lord in other countries, and to be kind and compassionate, generous. And yet we, we see a verse like this, and we say, it just doesn't feel right, so I'm going to disobey it. But I'm telling you, this is plain and is clear, and therefore to reject this verse is to reject the Lord, and it comes with great consequences. When we are silent in the face of evil, we are complicit in the spread of evil. To, in, to ignore evil is to encourage it. Last week, we looked at three reasons that we failed to obey this call from God. I'll review those as we build a little bit of momentum into today's message. Last week, we said that confronting culture sin requires dealing with our own sin first. So a lot of times we say, I'm not going to mess around with culture so I can stay where I am in disobedience. Two, we forget that we are commissioned to speak through Christ's authority. I'm as nervous as can be every time as I prepare to walk up on this stage before I get Hunter's wink. And, uh, but I'm here only because of the authority of Christ. I'm just saying what he has said. And I'm, I'm preaching in his forgiveness and in his cleansing. It's his authority. Third, we struggle to grasp the confronting nature of love. Love is very affirming, but true love, biblical love, is also very confronting. So now we come to point number four. We don't understand why do we not obey Ephesians 5.11, confronting culture. We don't understand just how dark the darkness is. To get a taste of what sin looks like from God's perspective, Paul tells us through a very unusual set of verses. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Then verse 12, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Shameful to even mention. You know, I, um, you can look at those verses and you can say, well, that's a little bit confusing because verse 11 says we are called to confront culture, and then verse 12 says don't even mention them. You say, well, well and so that's not, that's not the right interpretation. It's, it's impossible to deal with the sin of culture and never to mention, mention the sin of culture. That would be like an owner of an automotive shop saying to um, uh, an employee, I want you to clean all the dirty tools in the shop, but don't touch the tools that are dirty. So that's impossibility. So what this, is, what this verse is calling us to do is the only reason we are ever involved in mentioning the sins of culture is in order to redeem them. But apart from that, it would be sinful to even toy around with even mentioning what the disobedient do in secret. So the only reason we are involved and mention the sins of culture is to redeem people from the sins of culture. But that very reality should be a haunting uh, reminder to us of 
what used to be so frequently preached in the church of the holiness of God, just think God said that even to overly mention sins done in the darkness reminds us of how offensive sin is to God. That's just to mention them. And here we think about but how sinful it would be not to speak about them, but to actually immerse your life in them. How utterly sinful. So we think about someone who's not just mentioning sin, but immersing themselves in sin. They're going to one day stand before a holy God. And that is what fills us with a sense of urgency to go help them leave the darkness for the light because that is the God, the true picture of God before whom they will one day stand. But in our generation, we've lost that sense of urgency. You can read all of the great revivals of 21 centuries of, of preaching and the men who were tasked with calling nations and cultures back to the Lord, they used to preach with a sense of urgency because they knew the holiness of God was like this, that it's shameful to even mention the deeds in the dark much less to do them. But we've lost that sense of urgency. John MacArthur says it this way, Satan continues to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. Fifth reason that we struggle to obey Ephesians 5.11 and confronting our culture is we love comfort more than we love Love God. Uh, put it another way, we, we, we love to be affirmed. I don't know how many of you have ever gone into your child's room on Saturday morning when you thought it was uh, an appropriate time for them to get out of their bed and, uh, and you decided to help them by turning on the light. I'm sure at that time they never wrote a praise chorus about you when you told them to get up out of the dark. So the world does not affirm us when we say this is darkness. And that rejection by the world is what compels many believers to be quiet because, you know, it's not hard to gain the world's praise. You understand that, right? It's not hard to gain the world's praise. All you have to do is do something that the world says is good and they'll love you. I read last week, two weeks ago in Arlington, Texas, a 14-year-old dog named Zoe, half lab, fully deaf, left its owner's yard, fell into a drainage hole, a drainage ditch, and walked seven, several hundred feet down the pipe, getting further and further lost. Well, the Arlington Fire Department was called, and, um, and so they began to bust up the concrete, on the asphalt on the street, trying to figure out how far down was she. They spent 12 hours busting up the street. They even borrowed a, a little skateboard from a five-year-old boy so that one of the firefighters could lay on it and make his way hundreds of feet down the pipe to rescue the dog. The dog was rescued. In fact, it's the first time the firefighters ever said they can remember a dog actually being put on a stretcher and carried by way of an ambulance to the vet. And to make the story even more of a Hallmark movie, Somebody bought the little boy a new skateboard. <laughs> so I tell stories like that and everybody agrees. And, and yet now in that same state of Texas, when people are, are now fighting to save the lives of babies, that causes 
animosity. Tell a story of somebody saving a dog. Yay. Somebody saving the 172 children who, were, who would also die in that 12-hour period. And you've read on the news of how much animosity that has created. So you'll be affirmed if you say things that the world wants you to say. But to uncover that which is dark, the world grows quite hostile to that. And the world's disapproval is shutting the mouths of many Christians. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to you sing. It was the, the, the song is called um, The House of the Lord. And uh, in that song, there's a refrain that says, we will not be quiet. We won't be quiet. Over and over again, you sing. I heard you. I was in the back. I heard you sing it. We won't be quiet. And I was pulling for you because I knew that I was coming up to this passage uh, where the Bible calls us to not be quiet. And I'm thinking, you know what? It's a lot easier to sing that phrase, we won't be quiet in church, than it is out there, isn't it? To say we won't be quiet out in the culture is going to set you up sometimes for quite a bit of rejection and maybe persecution. But listen, if we only sing songs in here and don't live them out out there, it simply means we don't have true conviction. We believe a lot of things, but we're not convicted about a lot of things. The most important thing in life is to be convicted so much that you will take what you sing in here and say it out there. It's a costly thing to expose the sin of culture. I think we remember seeing that in the life of John the Baptist. He's, I really like him better as his, the title John the Baptizer. He loved the Lord so much. He, he lived or he served. His public ministry was not that long about 18 months, and um, he preached publicly out in the desert, out in the wilderness, about a year and a half before Jesus began his public ministry at, at age 30. He was a cousin of Christ, and uh, he was really sold out. He had one set of clothes. It was the skin of a camel, and he ate bugs to stay alive. He ate locusts to stay alive and honey. And his preaching, uh, you can read about it at the beginning of several of the Gospels, Mark and Luke, it was fierce. Um, it wasn't unloving, it wasn't hateful, but there was nothing John the Baptist could say other than what he said because the people were, had, had been away from God for 400 years. So he called them to repent of their sin. And that preaching uh, eventually led him to prison. Mark 6, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So the characters in the story are Herod. That's Herod Antipas. You, you all know Herod the Great. He was king of Judea when Jesus was born. This was his son, Antipas, Herod Antipas. Um, we don't really know a lot about the story. All we know is he stole his brother's wife. His brother was named Philip. And he, he took her, and he got married to her. And John said, that wasn't right, what you did. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and, and wanted to kill him. And if you read the rest of Mark, and I didn't want to read it to you because it's just harsh. She did kill him, uh, Taliban style, um, had him beheaded and then presented his head on a platter 
at a, at a, at a dinner gathering. Uh, was, uh, and it was all because, simply because he had confronted her about a sin that was, she was living in. So the desire for comfort and the fear of rejection is strong enough that it compels a lot of believers to be quiet. I mean, everybody wants to be liked. We want society to like us. We don't want to be rejected, but it, it can turn into that we love comfort more than God and we fear suffering more than sin. Number six, we have lost confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. We begin this series four weeks ago with Ephesians 5, 6, let one no, no, no one deceive you with empty words. And we said that empty words uh, are, is the picture of, a, of, a, of something that's beautiful on the outside, very attractive uh, on the shell, but on the inside there's nothing there. That's what an empty word is. It's, it's pretty sounding, it's clever sounding, but on the inside there's no truth. Or maybe half the truth, which means the other half would be deceptions. Paul said, don't be deceived by empty words, clever talk. And when we said that, we, you know, we sort of said, well, you know, he's warning the church. So you sort of think, well, where is this going to come from, this clever talk? This? And so you sort of think, well, it must going to be out there, that the philosophies embraced by the world out there, you know, because we always hear about, you know, concern of parents when they send their children off to college. You know, we don't want any philosophies, secular philosophies at that college to mess up their kids. So we normally think that this is a warning of what's going to happen out there. But actually, this is a warning about false teaching that comes inside the church. The danger is not out in the world. What Paul is talking about is the danger that's happening in the church. The reason that we know that is the last time that Paul ever met with this church face to face. This is a church in the city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. The last time he met with them, he, he was headed to prison, and he stopped in a little village called Miletus, gathered all the elders from this church, and, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, as this is what he told them of what was coming to their church. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So Paul said, I have so wanted you to know who God really is. I told you everything about him that the Bible declares. I didn't hold anything back. I, I declared to you everything about what it means to know and serve the Lord. And therefore, I'm innocent. There's no blood on my hands. If eternal harm comes to you, judgment, it's not because I didn't tell you. And so then he proceeds um, and... Um, to, to tell them that it's not always going to be this way. Um, there's a lot of people that do not believe that declaring to people the whole will of God, all of the Bible is helpful for this generation. They really believe there's parts of the scripture and parts of the nature of God that should not be presented. In other words, present more about his love, less about his holiness, more about his mercy, less about his justice. And it's almost like I don't it's almost like a physician not wanting a person who comes into his office and is diagnosed with cancer. It's almost like that physician says, I don't want them to experience the panic of hearing this diagnosis, so I won't tell them. Paul said, I want you to know God, and therefore I'm going to have to teach you everything that God says, even about the sin of your life. How can anybody ever come to Christ for the forgiveness of sin if they do not feel the conviction of sin? So Paul said, I told you everything about 
God, that you might come to Christ. Because his motive was, I want you to see all of God and love all of God, and I'm not looking for my own admiration. That's not true with false teachers. This is what he says is going to happen to the church after he leaves. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. This is what's going to happen to that church at Ephesus. And it did. It's no more. Even from your own number, not the outside, inside. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. That's deceiving in order to draw away disciples after them. You can read the same type of warning when Peter realized that he was dying there in a Roman prison cell about to be executed. The last words that he wrote in 2 Peter 2 was a warning of what's going to happen in the church through false teachers. I cannot emphasize enough, this is where the deception of the church will come inside, not out. You can't feel that weight enough because it's occurring all over culture now. When you don't teach everything the Bible says about God, it's because you are going to, you're going to end up producing people who follow you instead of God. You build a church on your own charisma. And the Bible's message to those types of church leaders is the blood of the lost is on your hands, as Paul said. The best synonym for deceitful speech is clever speech. It's a growing mindset among church leaders in this country to use clever speech to attract people into the church. Because we all know that the, our current culture is very hostile to God. No one is denying that. Very disinterested in God. And a new breed of church leaders believes that the way that you attract those hostile, disinterested people is through clever speech. Strategy meetings would sound something like this. What new thing can we tell this world that will make God attractive? They have a decreased confidence in God's Word and an increased confidence in their Wisdom, the most prominent sign of a false teacher is the desire to be clever. Now contrast this with Paul, how uh, speaking to another church in northern Greece, he said, 1 Thessalonians 2.5, never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. No flattery. I mean, does a football coach ever say to a team that's lost and executed poorly? Maybe my mind is thinking about that because of a game in Charlotte, North Carolina last night. Does a football coach flatter those men and say, you played great? No, he loves them so much he wants to develop them that he's going to show them where they made mistakes. He doesn't flatter them. Or think about this at a business perspective. I was at a, a um, retirement party last week after church of a man who has worked for UPS for 50 years. He was in the first service sitting on the front row, 50 years. Um, and I'm sure that he was never affirmed as a truck driver for doing a bad job. He was, 
his company developed him to do a better job. I was reading this week, you know, we're so blessed to have BMW manufacturing facility in our county. I don't know if you've ever read about BMW. It's just crazy. Great. What they, they produce 1,500 cars there every day. That's a car a minute. Um, and then the assembly line, you know, the cars leave there and they're, they're shipped down to Charleston by way of train and out on boats to 125 countries of the world. Each day, 1,300 truckloads of parts arrive at BMW. As 60 containers by way of the sea come to BMW every day and two containers in the air, from the air, 7 million parts arrive at BMW every day. It takes 20 million to put a car, uh, car together, 20,000 parts. So 7 million parts arrive every day, 20,000 parts put together at BMW. Now the logistical schedule is so tight that if the assembly line is down for one minute, for every one minute it is down, it costs BMW $50,000. Now I just want to say this, if that assembly line is down because people are making mistakes, do you think the owner of that company is going to flatter them and say, you guys are doing a great job? No, because the owner knows exactly how, what it takes to build a car. Exactly how a car should be built and when it should be built. And the designer of that company knows how it should be run. And if people aren't doing it according to their design, there will be development and not flattery. We don't help anybody in the church by lessening the standards of the designer. You don't help people by affirming them and flattering them when they need to be developed and confronted Nothing works in our lives, not a marriage, not a life. Nothing works in our lives when we're living in disobedience. Nothing works when we're living outside of the designer's purpose. Every time I walk into church, I want to be confronted. I need that every day. We'll never help the church by telling the, the world, by telling people what they want to hear, uh, but what they need to hear. This is what Paul, again, said to the most secular cosmopolitan city that uh, anybody has ever preached in was in the city of Corinth. You name it, they did it. And this is what he said was the, the way they did ministry there. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 23. God was pleased through the foolishness, not the cleverness, through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Jesus is the power of God and Jesus is the wisdom of God. So this is very interesting. Two things the world wants from the Apostle Paul. Jews wanted signs, miracles. They wanted a show. Prove it. Let me see some power in the church. Greeks wanted clever speech. So one group wanted a show, another group wanted clever talk, and Paul said, what I bring to you is a naked Jewish man dying on the cross for the forgiveness of the world's sin named Jesus Christ. He gave them exactly opposite of what they asked for. They wanted signs, they wanted great speeches, and he gave them Christ crucified. It doesn't sound really hip and cool, does it? There's a lot of people that would say the passage I've been preaching in the past few weeks, like you're not going to reach anybody. Yes, I will. 
I'll reach everybody that God is working with. When they get tired of the darkness, it'll be the light of, of a true church that they come to. After 6,000 years of human history, God is not going to rewrite Scripture for this generation. Our job is not to change the Scripture. Our job is to let the Scripture change us. So we stay at it until people choose to repent and believe Christ. So new generation of Christians, or new generations of church members, I would say, maybe pre-Christians, that are really ashamed of the truth, ashamed of the kind of things that we say here every Sunday. It's really ironic. They, you know, the world is not ashamed of anything they believe, proud of what they believe. And the, and the church is, in a, is at a very interesting stage of its life right now. Many twist 21st century church attenders are ashamed of the truth and ashamed of those who preach the truth. How could we ever be ashamed of God? He is the creator of every good thing that you'll enjoy today. This afternoon, if you want to find me, I'll not be answering my phone. I'll be at Lake Kiwi with a friend from college. He is the creator of all that water and the sunshine, all the knowledge and the ability we have, all math, all science, all medicine, all engineering, all rain, all sunshine, all food, all of it comes from his hand. How could I be ashamed of God? He does not owe us anything, but gladly gives us many things. He is sinless, yet invites sinners to come into his house forever and be saved. He demands that all sins be punished, and then he provides the very sacrifice when he punished his own son so that, we, so that justice would be done. How could I ever be ashamed of God? Why would I want to change anything about him? He's perfect, and the Bible perfectly reveals him. If you want the world to know the living God and put their faith in him, why would I not have full confidence in the Bible that was written by the very God who reveals himself in the Scripture? You'll never lead anybody to truth by withholding the truth from them. Let me say that again. You'll never lead anybody to the truth by withholding the truth from them. Number seven. Why do we struggle to obey Ephesians 5.11? Confronting culture, we've lost confidence in the power of the gospel. If you really want to know how powerful the scripture is, Paul explains what can happen when we do this unapologetically and lovingly, boldly and continually. He says in Ephesians 5.13 and 14, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So he tells us in verse 13 that two things happen when the light of Jesus Christ is revealed through Scripture. First, darkness is exposed, and then, and then um, illumination occurs so people will know how to get out of the darkness. So this is, what, this is why we preach the, the light. People realize they're in, the, they're in spiritual darkness, moral, they're in darkness, and then there's illumination. It's like somebody that's in a cave. You don't need to go in there and go a half mile into the cave and say, you're in the dark. You need to go take a lantern with you and bring them out. So for the world that's in the dark, 
Jesus Christ, no matter how long they've been in the cave and how deep they've been in the cave, he comes to them with his light and says and asks one question, do you want to get out of this darkness? And for everybody that says yes, he turns the darkness into day and turns dark hearts into lives that are full of his, his light. That's what the love of God does. He finds us in our darkness, shows us our darkness, and then illumines and shows the way out through Christ. And so it all brings us to this question or this statement that was made in this early church that this is the invitation for us today. Verse 14, this is why it is said, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Well, a lot of times when Paul says, this is why it's said, he's telling you, well, I'm quoting somewhere in the Bible. This is why it is said. Well, we can't find that anywhere in the Bible. It's beautiful. Wake up, sleep, or rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we really don't know what he's talking about. It is said. The only thing scholars can conclude is this must have been something that was frequently said in the early church, and therefore the people that he's writing to knew. Oh, yeah, we say that every Sunday. So it sounds like it must have been an evangelistic refrain that was used by the church so that when unbelievers were there, the church in unison would say, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Jesus Christ will shine on you. They knew it. They knew this phrase. It's an invitation to be saved. It's exactly what God is saying today to anybody here. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead means leave the the works of darkness that have brought spiritual, leave them. Rise up, leave them, and come to Christ, and he will shine on you. There's nothing more beautiful than to see somebody, as we're going to see next week, as we see every week. Even the people that greeted me today are stories of people leaving darkness for light. We celebrate that. We celebrate that. Um... Just a few weeks ago on Saturday, August the 4th, um, I don't know if you got to see it. It was beautiful. Um, it was a beautiful funeral. Uh, Bobby Bowden, the head coach at Florida State, died. I think he was 91 or 92. The second winning as coach, in, uh, football coach in NCAA history, but no doubt the greatest coach in NCAA history. Maybe number two in wins. He's the best. 377 wins, 129 losses, four ties, and 32 bowl games. Most of those great years were at Florida State. His funeral was a terrific testimony to his leadership and his evangelistic witness as a coach. He knew why he was there with those young men, to tell them about Christ. I especially enjoyed one of the testimonies that was shared that day in that service. It came from Mark Rick. You know, Mark, he was the former head coach and had some great years as a head coach down at Georgia. But before he coached at uh, Georgia, Coach Rick um, coached um, under, um, under Bobby Bowden at Florida State. And the story that I'm going to let Mark Rick tell you, uh, the, t the background story is this. In 1986, when Coach Bowden was at Florida State, uh, one of his players died. Pablo Lopez, he was a, a lineman, a defensive lineman. And he died uh, from a gunshot uh, outside of a dance one night 
a gymnasium where a dance was held in, in, in Miami. And uh, soon after his death, Bobby Bowden, Coach Bowden, gathered the whole team because he wanted to ask them the most important question that any of us can ever ask someone that we love and care about. Where are you with the Lord? I'll let Mark Rick tell you the story. Because Coach loved his team so much that, that after the death of Pablo Lopez in a team meeting, when he, looked, when he looked out to the players and I'm standing in the back of the room, there was an empty chair where Pablo sat. And Coach said he didn't know where Pablo spent eternity because he didn't know where he was in his faith. You could tell Coach was hurting, just like everybody else. But he said, men, he said, Pablo used to sit in that seat right there. And now he's gone. He goes, you're, eight, you're 18 to 22 years old. You think you're going to live forever, just like Pablo thought he was going to live forever. And now he's gone. He said, if that was you last night, instead of Pablo, do you know where you'd spend eternity? Well, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me as Coach Bound said, it was like a, an arrow pierced my heart. And I said, I know where I'm going. It's not a good place. And so that next day I knocked on the door. He said, come on in, buddy. He calls you buddy when he forgets your name. <laughs> and uh, I said, coach, I know you're talking to those players, but uh, I need Jesus. And so uh, I prayed to receive Christ right there in his office. And um, I'm eternally grateful for that. You know, I don't think God uh, asked Coach Bowden how many championships he won. I think, Coach Bow I think God asked Coach Bowden, what did you do with those I put you in authority over? What did you do with them? And you know what God said after that? Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for that divine moment in Coach Bowden's office when Mark Rick left the darkness for the light when the Son of God and the, the Creator of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, entered into His body, took away His sin, and filled Him with the purity of heaven. God, I, I, the last thing I can ever think about is being ashamed of You. You're so beautiful, and You're so kind, so patient with me. Every day I fail, and every day You forgive. Lord, I pray that today would be that moment like Coach Rick had today, right now, would be a moment where somebody invites you to become the Savior of their life. I pray you'd help them to believe, God, that no matter how far down the, the sewer pipe they've been or how deep into the cave, rescue is, has already, is on, not just on the way, it's already come. A Savior died, rose from the dead, and a spirit, the Spirit of God, is ready to enter their life, the Spirit of Christ. Father, help them say yes to you and all that you are for all that they need. I pray, God, this would be a great moment of someone moving, you moving in their life. And thank you now, Lord, for the chance to honor the great work of the, of the one who comes into our cave the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. We, Jesus, we just cannot wait to honor you now through the Lord's Supper. And even in that service, we ask you would 
now move greatly. Help us to appreciate again the sacrifice that has bought our salvation. In your name I pray. Amen. So I, um, I want you to take your, um, the cup and the juice. I told you it's got a little cellophane wrapper on the top that can be frustrating at times, but just give it a little gentle tug with your thumb and we'll first observe the, the Lord's Supper by allowing the wafer to remind us of the, of the broken body of, of God's own Son for sin. Before we uh, observe that part of the Lord's Supper, I want to tell you a story about light. In 1987, uh, Graham Kendrick, uh, he, he lived in Northamptonshire, England. As a songwriter, was brokenhearted over the condition of his country and the condition of his church, N- knew that the country needed renewal, the church needed revival. But he knew it would never happen until people said, I'm living in darkness and I'm coming back to the light of Christ. So he began to pray that the light of God would shine in a special way upon the church and upon the country. And the more that he prayed that prayer, the more words came into his mouth and through his hands. And he wrote a song called Shine, Jesus, Shine. It was released in 1987 and became the most popular song in, Christian, in the Christian world for 10 years. It was sung at every Billy Graham crusade and was even um, performed at the largest Catholic mass in Brazil. And they said that even you could see the Pope gyrating to the music. (laughs) So before we participate in the Lord's Supper, I've just asked Marcia just just to help us remember two verses from that beautiful, beautiful song. Bible says that um, God dwells in unapproachable light. That can be a disconcerting verse when you think about how can I approach unapproachable? Well, that's the story of the gospel. 
that Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world and creator of a hundred billion uh, galaxies, the creator of everything, became vulnerable, just like this little piece of bread wafer looks so vulnerable in my hand. The creator of all the galaxies came to earth and lived a perfect life that he might offer his body on a cross so that in his body, broken and crucified and whipped and scarred and rejected, all of your sins and my sins could be absorbed in his body. That's the light of the world on the cross. The maker of the galaxies on the cross for you because he loves you and wants you to be able to dwell in unapproachable light. If you believe that his body is the hope of you arriving in heaven, would you take and eat in remembrance of him? No, Jesus, no, we're not ashamed. We're delighted. We're ecstatic, filled with wonder and amazement. We look at the stars in the sky and those that we can see and those that we've read about that are far away. And we just praise you for your power that commanded that all of them come into being. And you gave away all that power and all that glory uh, to come don the robes of skin, to be rejected, not because anything was going wrong with your plan, but because things had gone wrong with us. We had departed. You came into the cave, brought the light, offered your body. And we thank you, we believe with all of our heart that your broken body has taken away all of our guilt. It's been transferred to the cross. It's been paid for. Full payment required, full payment given. And we say thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Now, before we um, celebrate the other half of the Lord's Supper with the recognizing of the blood of Christ, I just want you to sort of train your mind onto the concept of what are you doing with your life? Great sacrifice has been made. What are you doing with the light of Christ given to you? As Marcia sings in the, the final uh, verse and chorus, ask yourself, am I living as a, someone who's been purchased by the light of the world? As we gaze on your kingly brightness, so our faces display your likeness ever changing from glory to glory mirrored here may our lives tell the story shine on me shine on me
and mercy and send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. If you're an old soul like me, it's nice to hear that song again. If that is your prayer, the words, even if you've never heard it before, if that is your prayer, Lord, I want to be used to shine the light of Jesus Christ to all the nations, to this community, to schools, neighborhoods. I want the light of Christ to do a new cleansing, renewing work in me. Shine on me, Jesus. Shine through me, Jesus. If you are willing for the Lord, again, renew your life for Jesus' light to shine on you, in you, and through you. His blood can make that possible. His spirit can make that possible. If you believe that, would you drink the juice in honor of his blood? Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the refreshment of the taste as it reminds us of the refreshment of being clean. Oh, Jesus. We all bring a lot of stuff into this room today, and we want you to shine. Shine on our sorrow. It is deep. Shine on our, our troubles and our struggles. They are intense. Lord, shine on our fear. It's real. Shine, Jesus, shine. We can't do it. The light is not within us on our own. We need an outside source. We need your radiant beams from your face, from your eyes. We picture you now, the great God of revelation, the beams of light coming from the King into our lives to awaken us. Come, shine on us, Jesus. And now we pray for the world, for the nations. How can this little group of people in this building do anything for the nations, for Afghanistan? I don't know. I know, but that, I know it's your purpose, God, that our gathering today, right now, we're praying the light of Jesus Christ would shine on the people of Afghanistan, the people that are living in fear, the believers who are being persecuted. Shine on Afghanistan. Shine in the darkness. Shine in a way that disrupts the plans of evil, puts down the plans of evil, and may the gospel spread, may hope spread, not just in that country, but in all the lands of the world. Shine, Jesus, shine. It is in your glorious, radiant name, I pray. Amen.